Berkeley yeah. Can none of y'all mirror me back? You can hear me rap, it's like hand G rapping is prime. I'm young HO, rap's great for dead. Welcome back to Miami Nice. Oh my goodness, I'm staring at a now cinematically immortalized film critic from the LA Times, <laughs> my dear friend, Katie Walsh. Hello, it's true, friend. I'm here. But <laughs> I've never used the word jazzy in a review. Never jazzy, never, never jazzy. jazzy. Only Maybe on this, about Miami Vice. <laughs> only on this podcast are you jazzy. Yes. As you guys know, Miami Nice is a treat for Katie and I, and hopefully for you guys listening, because now what we do rather than trying to put the mileage and be exhaustive on this movie, we just come back to it with people who like us love it. And so I wanted to talk to this person. We have a very like short list and it only like grows incrementally every now and then by someone bullying us online to say that they must be a part of this show. But this person was on our list from the very beginning. He is an unfathomably talented film critic, which he does part-time, which is annoying because he's very, very good. So only after 11.47 p.m. on a Saturday night is he a film critic. The rest of his days are spent at a day job where he's an insurance agent. He has bylines at rogerebert.com, Metaplex. Vague Visage is where you can find his incredible piece on this film, Movement and Melancholy in Miami Vice, that I was lucky enough to read before he even got published there. This man wrote this line. Miami Vice is a concert of image, sound, behavior, instinct, feeling, and vibe. Brendan Hodges, welcome to Miami Nice, because this is a podcast all about that vibe. <laughs> I am so happy to be here. I love Miami Vice. Um, and in fact, on the first podcast I ever did with you, Blake, on One Heat Minute, we had, I think, like a 10-minute digression <laughs> Yeah, just on how great... Miami Vices. And if people have listened to One Heat Minute, go back. There's like, you'll find the guest list for half of the show that hasn't been on here yet of people who like stopped the One Heat Minute's tracks just to talk about Miami Vice for 10 minutes. Blake, I just want to talk about Numb Encore. I think that's those people's names are Katie Walsh. Those <laughs> people's names are, there are, there are certain people who just mentioned it. And of course, like it's, there is something about it that is like, undeniably comforting i don't know i don't even know how to describe it it's like and i think you did such a you've i don't think it's going to be possible short of us like literally reading your great and lengthy piece and we'll try and touch on sort of the big key points but i, I think that that's something that we always talk about when we get together over this sort of campfire of a show is like it is a weird and wonderful and unique thing that you can just keep going back to and it's just so goddamn pleasurable in all of its sleaze, in all of its, you know, uh, over the top things, in all of its incongruities, whether it's like naturalism versus like cool shit, it's it's great. It's awesome. Yeah, I think Brendan, you articulate in that piece really well, like the appeal of this movie that people are constantly talking about, which is like how rewatchable it is because it's just a vibe and it's a mood. And sometimes you don't even need to know what's happening or like who's double crossing who, you just need to kind of like go on the ride. And you really do articulate that in that piece, which is like, just like, just sink into it, go on the mojito run and like, <laughs> let it flow. <laughs> now, I want to talk about one big part, because obviously there's plenty of things that you want to talk about, but I just want to kick off with like, there's one thing that you call this movie, um, which I think we've kind of touched on, but I wanted to sort of lead off with it, is that it is really 
a kind of hyper romantic, unapologetic love story. And there's like a whole part of this movie, which is just like a really, it is a relationship that is riding an asteroid that is about to crash into the earth. And there is something that is so addictive of watching like this thing that is just burning at a heat that you cannot measure and, but you know, it is going to crash and burn. Like, is that, can we talk a little bit about you, Brendan, with like that appeal uh, as an entryway into your, your love of Miami Vice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one of the big stumbling blocks for people who don't love Miami Vice is that they just don't get the romance. <laughs> it, I know so many people who are like, no, 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 I get the vibe. I, I get the HD video. I love all that. I love the heightened dialogue. I love visuals. I love the pacing. But then the love story kind of takes over the movie. And I just check out because I cannot invest in this love story. And what's so interesting about this is that for me, it's the total opposite. <laughs> um, when this I is where I check in. This is where I check into this movie. Um, well, like for me, as soon as I started watching it within seconds with that hard cut into the club at the beginning, I was, I, I say my piece, it was like I was getting jacked into the matrix. <laughs> and it, it was this like amazing experience from the get-go for me. But I had no idea where it was going. And in all of Michael Mann's other movies, except for maybe Last of the Mohicans, the romance is very much a subplot. It's a B plot that interweaves with the main narrative. And I love reading Manola Dargis's writing on Michael Mann because she so wonderfully articulates what a romantic filmmaker he is. Yeah. But in Miami Vice, it's like so bizarre because about halfway through the movie, it stops being this like a uh, crime film. It, like that becomes <laughs> the B plot. And the A plot becomes this crazy love story where sure you could argue well why do they click and why, why why is this happening but all that really matters for me is that the camera is following these two people their body language their chemistry the way they look at each other the way they dance with each other and you know they they um i, I love all those dancing scenes midway through the movie that's like one of my favorite parts of any of michael mann's films because, because when i watch it it's like I want to go dancing and I feel like I'm dancing with them and you feel like you're part of that intoxicating experience. Right. And that is, I think what really makes or breaks the movie for people. It's so weird, just structurally what the movie is doing. Right. I, I can't name many other crime movies where it does that um, or movies period that almost switch gears that hard midway. Um, so I think that's kind of key to the movie. And I think that's why some people find the ending scenes devastating and profound and emotional or flat <laughs> and boring and undynamic. Um, it really depends on your investment in these characters. And it's like, like Katie was saying, you either go with them or you don't. And I certainly do. <laughs> It's so interesting that you're talking about what we expect from a crime movie because it made me think of Julia Hart's I'm Your Woman. Jimmy. Something happened tonight. You'll work out with Cal where you're gonna go. Who the hell is Cal? Where is Eddie? 
I'm Cal. Mm. Which is inspired by Thief. Terrific movie. And how she basically uses it as this exercise to say, okay, at this point, the woman goes this way and the man goes this way. And usually we follow the man and see what he's doing. And instead we follow the woman. And I think the film sort of like purposely obfuscates like what the crime is or what's happening or what her husband's done. Well, who the it, protagonist should be. Yeah. Right, and, and because she doesn't know what's going on. So it's like, we're so with her, um, uh, point of view that we are like I have no idea like what her husband's done or who the guy he killed is but it's like doesn't matter because that's we're just with her but and, it, and I, you get no preamble which is so fantastic it's like in much like I know I don't know if anyone's made the comparison if there's anyone in the world who has it's literally you Katie of like <laughs> it, it it literally drops you media res into this person's life and it's sad and it's lonely and it feels like it's a bit sort of uh, listless and, and directionless and then one, two, three, bang. Like the story happens and you're in and it's like, wait, is anyone ever going to tell me who this guy is? Right. What he's done? Like, can I just like, can I get something? And then you kind of go, as, as soon as you turn that impulse off in your brain, sometimes that programmatically is there. It's like, oh no, no, I'm good. This is great. Like, yeah, get in the car with this guy that you've never met before. I love it. Let's go. Like, let, right. and take the baby. And, Let's go. And we're not going to know, you know, why this guy is picking you up until like, the third act of the movie. Yeah, yeah, right. But, um, you know, it's interesting because you said, Brendan, like not a lot of crime films will do this thing where suddenly we're having this romantic weekend in Cuba and we're dancing right. and we're in the condo and we're learning about each other. You know, I mean, I love, I love how I'm saying we as if I'm like, <laughs> part. I'm like, hey guys, I'm the, in the throuple. You're, you're suddenly Gong Li. She's adopted the <laughs> yeah. Gong Li. Right. I mean, that's, I'm just that's like in the point. corner, like, yeah. hey, can I watch you guys? <laughs> well, I think that's exactly it, which is that for people who do connect with the movie, you feel like you're, in on the yeah. love affair mm. and it's very somatic you know um i took a wonderful class in college called film and the body and um basically the premise of the class was studying how the brain interacts with mirror neurons as we experience moving images with sound movies and it's so interesting the way that our body can try to mimic or like play pretend with what's happening. And the great example of that is in Die Hard when McLean runs on the glass, you feel the glass on the bottom of your feet. Yeah. And it's very much the same thing with Miami Vice for people who love it because you feel as though you are also dancing. And I can feel not- I can feel every bit of the ice from the mojito in my mustache, every single <laughs> one. I can feel everyone. I'm like, oh my God, that's yeah. it's sweaty. It's awesome i want to be exact i want I'm, I'm a fiend i'm a big disco guy i want to be right there you know in every one of these club scenes it's like especially after 2020 you see these club scenes and it's like give me my kingdom for a club like that to go in and dance safely 15 percent of this movie is us discussing how much we want to go to a club in 2020 <laughs> I mean, 15% of this podcast, like yeah. we need to do like a breakdown of how much be... time we're like, God, I want to go to the grimiest oh, club I can I think go of. The most disgusting club. There, should, there, there is definitely a highlight reel in, in that. In, in... <laughs> yeah. I um, mean, but... I can feel his sweat soaked Guayabera shirt, you know, blasting <laughs> on a cigarette, a go fast boat to Havana. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's very visceral and you can feel 
the humidity and the barometric pressure and all of that stuff uh, kind of oppressing all of them, but also creating something that's super heady and tangible. becomes the engine of the narrative because the fact that they can't stop dancing is what gets everybody caught and in trouble and everything like that so it's like i michael you do Mann that introductory like, line in your piece you're like this is one of the only movies crime movies that ever been derailed by dancing like that's <laughs> yes. like that and it does it completely derails the movie yeah i mean it's kind of unthinkable to imagine heat Macaulay gets caught because he dances with his new romantic interest <laughs> and then Vincent Hanna sees it and is and is like is, is there a way you know what I mean like it's inconceivable that a quote-unquote serious cerebral adult crime film will operate that way and the movie doesn't the thing I love about it more than maybe anything else is that it doesn't hide what it wants to be it's not trying to smuggle its idiosyncrasies in yes it is gloriously doing what it wants to be doing it has no inhibitions about wearing its freak flag so to speak you know the moxie <laughs> of it um and I think that suits the, the movie you you like i love each big swing and i love watching the, them fly out of the park you know yeah I would also say, you know, when we're talking about the dancing scene, like driving sort of the conflict of the movie, like I think another element of that is the um, Tubbs hesitancy because he's worried about the woman that he's in love with. You know, Tubbs yeah. is kind of pushing back on Crockett and this romance because he's like worried about the Naomi Harris character. And, and you know, that is another like uh, really emotional through line for me is like, and especially in the director's cut. There's more of that um, establishment of, of the threat that's made to her and that he's very concerned about it. And again, we've said this a million times that like, we're like the coffee scene needs to be in the, uh, yeah, in there the needs, theatrical. There's, there's, there are three cuts of Ali. Actually, there might be four, but there's definitely three that I own on variety of different mediums. And so for me, it's like, there needs to be a third cut of Miami Vice which restores that coffee right. scene because that exactly. like, yeah, I, I completely agree. There's, there's a moment in that director's cut coffee scene for anyone. If you're not like super familiar with it, where basically it is showing it's like Ricardo finally revealing all of his heart on his sleeve about like not wanting to go as far as Sonny and, and Trudy does the dutiful thing, but you kind of even know it like almost foreshadows even more heavily that she's going to be in trouble, which is, she's like, no, I need you to go out there and be on that edge and you can't think about me. That's not what I'm not like a damsel. And like, she kind of takes her agency as part of the crew. Like I'm not your damsel. Like you need to go as far out to the edge and not be worrying about what I'm doing. Cause I can look after myself. And 
that's where you can kind of see the shift in Rico's mindset of like, let's keep playing it up. Let's keep going up. I'll never doubt you. Let's keep going. And, but it's just, there's this beautiful scene that, you know, it's why some people wanted Pacino to be on Coke in heat. And I'm like, I don't need it. But I think in Miami Vice, yeah. like I want this because I kind of want that little bit more conflict for Rico because he's such a great totem in this movie that you can follow and constantly get new things out of. But yeah, I would love that scene because of, because of exactly that. Right. I mean, I, for me, that's the one scene of the director's cut that I think should be in the theatrical. Otherwise I'm a, major proponent of theatrical yeah same same in this sorry bill sorry bill i i know that you love (laughs) the director's cut i'm sorry this is another Um, thing that happens on the show people talk directly to bilga like it's his voicemail (laughs) (laughs) bilga i have a message for you theatrical cut is superior it's i just think um, the theatrical it's just the opening like the the opening opening is is chef's kiss Yeah, as you said before, like you were plugged into the Matrix at in that opening, so we don't need the whole boat race. As much as we love the boat race, I love that scene. It's amazing. I just wish it was somewhere else in the movie. Yeah. Yes. Um. So, yeah, it's so interesting. I don't know. It's like we could. Yeah, we need a third cut. I think what we're realizing is that we need a third cut. (laughs) I think. I think. I think what's happening here is that some somehow somewhere someone just. If Vashi needed, this is another thing. If Vashi Niedermansky, the editorial consultant and friend of this and other One Heat Minute Productions, is listening, Vashi, <laughs> can you please, like, you're a professional, just drop that back in the theatrical cut and let's go. Like, right. I, I, I'm going to cut this out on headliner just so Vashi can see this request and <laughs> so that he can, <laughs> yes. um, so he can see this request and do it. But I think that that's that's definitely. Um, that's definitely something that just needs to happen. It needs to happen on the internet. Like, um, what was it like? Topher Grace, who re-edited all the Star Wars prequels just for fun. Like, we need more of that. Like, just come on. Yeah. Let's do it. We're talking about romance. And I think that one thing we haven't talked about so much, and and you guys both talked about Manola Dargis talking about, like, romance, is just the romance of every physical location. Like, we talked about it with the clubs, like, as a tangible space. But, like... Um, Nicholas's apartment is a is the, one of the most romantic places you've ever seen. Like it's like it? like it's it's. But I mean, as like it, it's obviously this big decadent, like completely over the top place. But it's like every place that they are, they are like, and they're hiding in plain sight. They're staying at this huge, you know, waterfront mansion that has a boat ramp that comes out to the house. That's where they're staying to hide in inverted commas. Nicholas's mansion looks out at the ocean. It's like this big spire. And even though you don't want to look at all this white marble and Eddie Marsden in his little, you know, uh, uh, le- leisure suit, I guess you could probably call <laughs> it's like it. Like linen linen leisure, <laughs> linen <laughs> leisure suit. Um, but you've got these moments of like this turbulent storm going and then, and then, and then Sonny sort of staring out and looking at it. And I think that like, that's something to be said of like man casting the locations and scouting the locations. Like everything has this, I don't know, this mystique in almost every location in this movie. And definitely in something like heat, you know, that one of the big capital R romantic moments is like that you, Manola Daga says it, you believe that Amy Brenneman as a graphic designer would own that apartment because that's like the one thing that is completely unrealistic in the movie. There is no way she could afford the apartment that she has with like the best view of LA ever. So yeah, I just want to talk to you, Brennan, because I know you mentioned it 
you know, you talk about some spaces and, and how the comparison with man and some other stuff is that this movie is just so incredibly full of life. Yeah. And I think that what man does really, really well in general is that his movies always center very human, very relatable characters amidst these abstract kind of expressionistic backdrops that are all kind of visual metaphors for how the characters are feeling. And to those of you who love Black Hat, that's also (laughs) a movie that constantly centers characters in almost like these art installation spaces. Like one of the big shootouts in that movie is basically like this, there's like these cubes everywhere and I I don't know why but they're cool and (laughs) there's this general attitude to his work of uh, space and geometry and nature and seeing how these things interrelate. Um, I think man is doing very different things than a filmmaker like Antonioni but I think one thing from Antonioni he might have learned is just how to frame characters in space. Yeah and um, this is this is his most red desert movie. Because yeah, like, you know, no, like where, where, where people, people who you feel are like real are walking through this landscape and that almost has a surreal quality just because of how incongruous they feel like huge, like yeah. billowing factories and just someone like a drab suit. And like, it looks like it's in a wasteland and a bog and yeah, there's lots well, of, it, there's it, lots of great stuff. Real. Yes. And I mean, man, I think in the director's commentary, you know, says that he wanted the environment to be like an opiate. Yeah. in Miami Vice and um, you feel that and in, in this the case of this particular movie I think what's a little bit different than his other films is he turns down the dial on narrative and he turns up the dial on the environment right and you mentioned that scene where uh, Crockett's looking over that great vista I mean you don't get more of a Michael Mann image than a big epic sky you know, endless horizons, um, <laughs> negative space with the character framed kind of low, low in the overall composition. But what I think is so interesting about that scene in particular is that it's an exposition dump and Crockett is like, I'm out. <laughs> it's almost like signaling to the viewer, this narrative stuff maybe not so important. <laughs> He literally walks out of the mission briefing scene. <laughs> I love um, that. Call Columbia. Man, that's Jose Euro. Really? He is AUC, you know. Colombian right wing paramilitaries. You know who they are? They are vertically integrated. They you are. You mean they walk around with constant erections? No. They farm, process, produce, export. I know. What it means. No, see, it gives them attitude. A player negotiates too hard and you never hear from him again because these guys kill everything. I gotta know what's the skinny. It's none of your fucking business. It can come back on me, baby. Can't come back on you, baby. Am I sure to that? Hey, Sunshine, when has Rico or Sonny ever lied to you? Huh? I mean, when has anything Rico told you not to happen exactly like he said? I'm saying I love you. No, I'm not saying that. Yes, you are. That's so, that's so, it would be like Ethan Hunt getting the mission on the tape and just (laughs) stopping listening halfway through. Yeah, he just go, and it's not like he takes an important call or anything. He just looks out the window and looks pensive. 
you know? Um, yeah. And I, I think that that is kind of the thing. And you don't get much more dramatic than opening a movie, not just with this gritty HD video, not just with these big video walls of flashing screens, but also these crazy, like the sky looks, I mean, there's a hurricane going on in the background, but it almost looks alien. Yes. You know, it. I watched um, Color Out of Space last year, which has all these like purple Lovecraftian clouds. These clouds look even more so, you, you know? Um, <laughs> it has this alien quality to the whole movie. And I think what that does is that it immediately makes the movie feel like more of a tapestry of image and feel than anything else. Um, I'm going to make a weird comparison and Blake don't kill me. Cause I know you don't support the star Wars prequels as much as I do, but <laughs> actually, often... actually look, let's, you know, let's, if, if, if anyone's going to say, I, um, I would rather watch the Star Wars prequels than the sequels. Like oh. as in, then, then the JJ Abrams sequels, <laughs> uh, right. because the discourse is just more consistent. It's like, okay, that, that, that's it's fair. just like, it's, um, I, if, if I say I watched the Star Wars prequels, I know what, and if, if I ever mention it publicly, <laughs> I know what dialogue I'm going to get. If I say I'm watching yeah. The Last Jedi, I also know, and you know very well, my friend, what dialogue we're going to get. So let's talk about the prequels. <laughs> let's okay. stretch it there. <laughs> um, so I am a, I'm a hardcore apologist of all the Star Wars prequels, and I, I have to go to this place. Um, I didn't have room in my article to do this because I thought any editor would be like, nope. <laughs> but, um, so this is the this is the deleted scenes of your article, this yeah. podcast. This is, Give yes. us all the weird Give comparison. Give us all the weird stuff, yes. <laughs> um, so I grew up loving the prequels. And if you actually think about it, the prequels are movies that are also very narratively flimsy and abstract in a weird way. And they center, they like very much center image and sound. Uh, none of the other Star Wars movies literally just have endless montages of cool looking stuff with John Williams music playing. Yes. And none more so than The Phantom Menace. The whole movie is just this experiential thing just flooding at you. Exactly, exactly. John Williams 100%. going absolutely apeshit. And you're like, yes, yeah. gimme. Like the landing sequence or yeah. um, a bunch of the later scenes on Naboo, stuff like that. And I bring up the, the, uh, the prequels because those movies, if you return to them, weirdly, they're similar to Miami Vice. I, I know. <laughs> hold on. This has hold, never hold been on. a connection that's been made on this show yet. I'm excited to see where it, it goes. Um, but all I really mean is that it's very much a movie for me about vibe and feel. And it's very much about these images and these sounds and these textures. And when people have asked me, how do you like the prequels? There's this issue, this, and you know, there's literally, and it's, it's like pie. You, you don't run out of criticisms of the prequels. <laughs> there's so many of them. However, what I tell people is they're rich in thematic imagery the cities, the designs, it's almost like walking through a contemporary art museum. Or in a way, it's almost like walking through the, the classical section and then going yeah. to the contemporary yeah. art section, uh, where you kind of go between these very different types of aesthetics and what they mean. 
and all the iconography and baggage those things bring with them. And I, I've always wondered, is my general preference in cinema, uh, it's like nature versus nurture, is my general preference in cinema for movies that feel more abstract and have like a cool vibe and operate on this level of experience, is that because I grew up on the prequels? <laughs> or do I like the prequels because that's just my natural preference? We will um, never know. We'll never know that. I don't know. The, 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 you need that, to do some deep diving that, on that, that one. That chicken and the egg question is something that this show never is going to answer. But <laughs> but, but it's an interesting question for sure. Like, yeah, it's and, and and I think what's interesting also is like when we talk about Miami Vice and the environment and the vibe, it's like I feel like Michael Mann, it's like a bucking bronco. There's a hurricane, you know. I'm from, you know, the Caribbean. So like I understand like the weather changes at any moment. Like it could rain, it could be hot, it could do this. It's, it's like, it's, he's just like, okay, I'm just capturing the, this, the essence of this place. Whereas the prequels are, that is all created, you know, like that, right. you know, like Michael Mann's location scouting these, you know, mansions in Cuba and in, and in um, Miami, but like someone else is creating it. So it's just, it's sort of this like organic versus inorganic type of. Yeah essence and vibe like are you capturing it or are you creating it well michael mann katie i think we've talked about like a guy is so controlled so, so like the fact yes. that so the fact that he's controlled and the environment and everything that's going on and the as we've heard from some of our guests and we'll hear in more detail in later shows which we're so looking forward to doing don't worry we haven't forgotten about them the behind the scenes stories of how this movie was made and all of oh the chaos. God. Like he is literally, yeah. I love that analogy of a bucking Bronco. Cause he's like holding on and the movie feels like you are those reins that maybe are going to break or you're going to come at any, at any minute, too. any minute. Right. Whereas, whereas George okay. Lucas yeah. as the inverse, his brain is like, this is every idea I've had for 40 years. Right. And it's just <laughs> going. And you're like, Holy, you're, you're the one who's got the reins. Like, yes. can, I, can I carry any of this? Whereas Lucas is like, here's every idea. Here's every thematic concept. Here's every like great visual that I've wanted to throw at you that I could never have done in every other thing. And so it's so great. Um, and I just want to talk about just one tiny, tiny technicality, Brennan, is like in Brennan's piece, obviously having really fastidiously researched Miami Vice, he talks about the Thompson Viper camera. And just to talk about the wow. Viper, the Viper in 2006, just to talk about its application, there was another movie um, in 2006-7 that used the Viper to basically replicate 35mm film. And that movie is Zodiac. So talking about the versatility of HD, you only have to put the Thompson Viper, which was used, like one of the first films that was used on was this, Miami Vice, to shoot. You see like how crazy you can ratchet the colors and how crazy you can look at the nights and how insane it just like takes in all these like weird spectrums of things that you've never seen before. And then when you, you know, have it locked off in like finches, this camera cannot bump one second. Otherwise I'm going back and doing the take again version <laughs> of this. Um, right. That's the versatility of HD. It's kind of like one of those things we haven't really talked about it and because we haven't really had the, the, the necessity to yet but i think it's just one of those interesting things about the whole style of this movie it's like oh it's all hd it's visual it's crap and it's like well like two completely different films with two completely different vibes to show you the versatility and the allure of like digital because i can create 35 mil or i can create this new thing which miami vice is 
Yeah, and so I actually think that it's weird we don't credit Miami Vice this way, and I could be wrong, but I think Miami Vice is technically the first Hollywood blockbuster shot totally digitally, or first major studio film. I think it is. I, uh, I, did some I think Collateral's earlier. No, That's but the only- I mean, all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's completely, yeah, because Collateral's got some film. All yeah. the way through. Collateral had, like, mostly 35 millimeter. I think only 40% of that movie was shot on HD. Yeah. And um, so you could say, oh, Brendan, obviously the Star Wars prequels. Ah, <laughs> but the Star Wars prequels are indie movies. <laughs> right. So I think that, um, and I don't, I really, I don't mean to keep making the George Lucas, Michael Mann comparison, but it's interesting because they're both pioneers of early digital as well and the digital pipeline in general and and they all and they often have a lot of fans that say god your early movies were great (laughs) and just ignore everything (laughs) they did afterwards right like they're like i don't care Um, about red tails george but give me give me american graffiti every day of the week you know like that's that's the that's a a similarity for both yeah you're not wrong um but what's interesting about early digital is you have filmmakers who double down on this hyper digital aesthetic that many people would call ugly. I don't, I think it's glorious and beautiful. And I I think the images in Mammy Vice are some of my favorite I've seen. And this even goes for like Black Hat. Some of the images in that film are just outstanding. And then you have filmmakers who are trying to recreate the aesthetic of cinema. And what's interesting is I think they almost always have failed. Zodiac, if it's trying to look like celluloid, it doesn't. No. It looks amazing, but it that's a that's a movie that I think looks ugly in some areas as well because of the limitations of early digital. There's blown out whites a lot of the time in Zodiac. There's a very um icky quality to some of the blacks in that film as well. The darks in the film are very, very much milky at times. Um, It looks beautiful. And I think it's more importantly, it suits its subject. But the the, the whole, I found this in a canister in 19, it was in a canister labeled Zodiac in 1974. And then I played it in 2008 when it was, you know, 2008 when it was released. But what's interesting is I think Zodiac, as much as the intention is to, appropriate some of this celluloid tradition not totally obviously he shot it digitally in the first place partly because he wanted to get those night scenes Mm. very much liking collateral and so forth but insofar as it is trying to replicate celluloid it's interesting because um it's a situation where it looks like a, a somewhat failed attempt at something that will get better later yeah and the earlier digital movies, and I'm thinking even going back to like Dogma 95, those like, you know, Celebration um, by Vinterberg, that movie very much is like, this is disgustingly digital. It's (laughs) rainy and noisy and everything's blown out, but it almost adopts this like gothic, spooky, spectral quality somehow. And, and it fits the subject matter of sort of this like familial chaos and secrets. And it's supposed to be ugly because the content is, in, is ugly. Absolutely. It, it's a perfect example of form and content being unified. And I think that was 
what man was more interested in. And you see that taken to even further extremes, I think, in Public Enemies. But in the case of Miami Vice, I don't think this movie could work at all without the digital cameras because they de-theatricalize the experience. <laughs> yeah. it, it, the sets look like sets, the costumes look like costumes, and the, the shootouts in particular look a little hokey for some people. Um, I think of that early shootout in the movie when the camera is placed inside of a car, when there's that drug deal gone wrong and the crazy Nazis blow those cars to smithereens and the, car, and the, the camera's locked inside, it looks like, you know, unedited, uh, you know, film student footage in a, in a weird way. It has a very de-theatricalized look. Hey, Ivan, my brother. How long have you been working with the FBI? And for some people, they check out. And this came up a lot with The Hobbit. When oh, the, 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 Hobbit the frame movie, rates were such a crazy, exactly, you know, yeah. that was with so jarring. The, exactly, the 48 frames per second with The Hobbit movies, people were like, oh, this looks, looks like a set. It looks like behind the scenes. But I think the difference in the case of Miami Vice is that man took those elements and made an entire unified look and aesthetic with them. Yes. So that you feel there. Yeah. You feel like you are in those spaces. And it is unbelievably immersive for me. Yeah, and it almost feels like um he's em he's embracing sort of the like sleazy ad hoc like yeah. oh someone maybe captured this on a crappy digital camera this crazy shootout i mean obviously it's not a found footage thing but it right. if it gives it that look it gives it that kind of like rough around the edges like maybe not perfectly celluloid captured and you're like oh it feels grittier it feels maybe a little bit more real yeah can that, you, for yeah. that time yeah you, you, yeah just now that like i think about that car scene where those huge bullets go through the car and it does like an impossible well a non-digital impossible shot of mounting a what feels like a surveillance camera from inside the back perch of like the top of a car and you can't fit a camera there unless you chop the whole top of the car off which changes the whole lighting of the scene and it's and and it's that virtual version of that where you are looking at from well I'm surveilling this and there are definitely definitely scenes that are like that which for a movie that does feel like it has a lure and it's and it's pulling you through every scene um like that scene is so perfect because you're like that that works and then and later in the movie the interplay between grainy surveillance footage and people watching people watch surveillance footage and things like that there's a great you know um Niles Schwartz does this great has a great book on public enemies um he's been a friend and a guest of the show and he talks about just that interplay of digital and like how screens and tvs communicate with each other in the later michael mann digital films particularly in like enemies and then you know in, in miami vice and stuff like that and there's just the, I, that's one thing i love in this movie is it that the thematically consistent use of this stuff 
um, because yeah. It, it, yeah, it feels like it works. And I think that's probably the best examples, right? When it actually, it comes off because the whole thing feels like that it's intentional. Like I want it to look like this. I want to feel like this. And, you know, we we've credited Michael Mann's commentary track on this show as well. One of the great ones is how he actually doesn't talk about the amazing sex that Jamie Foxx um, uh, and uh, and Trudy are having in that moment. Um, he just talks about something else completely. It's my favorite part of the whole commentary track. Where like <laughs> they're having this amazing sex, and he just doesn't mention how great the sex mm-hmm. looks or is. He just like talks about <laughs> some technical thing. It's beautiful. But um, yeah, I think in that moment he keeps talking about you know. I, I wanted to see the night skies. I wanted to have this very visceral look. Like I want it, you know, the inside of that car, that person who's in the car getting shot up is fake. Like that's like a, people were kind of shocked. Like, Oh, did you use a dummy? How did you do that? And it's like, no, we shot the car up and then digitally created a person in there to show them what the carnage would really look like. So um, yeah, it's, it's so it's perfect form and, and content marriage. Yeah. And I would add one quick point, which is, Michael Mann's whole filmography is this tension between the literal and the abstract, right? Yes. Between a kind of realism and a kind of fantasy. And I think that divide is never shown better than in Miami Vice because what's physically happening is not too fantastic necessarily, you know, Um, in the sense that it's, uh, you know, over the top. There's no crazy, crazy shootouts. Um, they're all done with typical Michael Mann, you know, realism or whatever. But visually, the camera makes everything seem so real yeah. that it almost looks unreal. And I think that quality of being both almost a documentary style fly on the wall and having these dreamy images, it's somehow both at once. And I think that hallucinatory quality is the whole thing. I I think that's really the engine of the movie really. And what's so funny is right at the beginning of the movie, uh, especially in the theatrical cut, when you see um, Justin Theroux's character looking at the terrible like Nokia video footage of like um, looking at Herc with the prostitutes as they're trying to, you know, trying to do this sting operation. Um, obviously, obviously it's Dominic Lombardozzi guys, but I can call him Herc right now because that's what, <laughs> yes. we, all call, that's what we all call him. Um, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's such a funny thing also of like, here's some terrible grainy surveillance footage. Cause like, this is the state of the art at the moment. And then the movie has this quality like detached. It's kind of like, this is bad quality. This is good quality. Like it does this, like, it's this in it's intra text commentary on like this is like state of the art and this is state of the art at the same time it's this weird beautiful mashup right and and also oh sorry katie just one second yeah yeah last of the mohicans is another one that not many people reference about reality and fantasy because for all of the research that michael mann did and and does on all of his films of like look at these amazing costumes, look at this, you know, uh, look at this incredible weaponry, look at this dialect, look at this incredible stuff that we've done. And then everyone's like, but how are Hawkeye and Cora's hair and teeth so perfect? Because that (laughs) could not be correct in 1757. It just couldn't be correct. And everyone's just fine 
with everyone's teeth in the movie because it's ultimately <laughs> a fantasy. They're like, here's this replica arrowhead and also my Pantene hair. <laughs> and this glorious hair that is like impossible. It's impossible um, at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, no, I was just going to, you know, comment, commenting on the digital nature of it all like, and what Brendan was saying about the abstract and the realism. It's like, man, obviously, like he's adopting a new format in digital and he's obviously very excited about pushing its limits and seeing what it can do, but also letting it be its own thing and speak to the story in its own way without trying to make it be something else. Yes. And I love that you said it's like this hyper real thing because I almost, I was thinking of the one of the uh, sequences at the end where they go and rescue Trudy it almost feels like a cops episode or something like that. And you kind of want that like not quite perfect digital um, aspect of like, oh, they're like rushing into the house and then they're confused. It's like all kind of at eye level. Hold it! Hold it! Drop the detonator! Drop the detonator. But then you might have like a scene where he's flying the plane and it's like gorgeous, big, you know, clouds in the sky. And it's like, you will take a moment to kind of just like, be like, wow, look at that amazing image. And then also you can look at the amazing images of like grimy police work, um, you know, where they're rescuing her from the trailer. So yeah, I just love that, that the way you articulated that Brendan in, in terms of like the real and the unreal and, and how it connects thematically as well. Yeah, there's it's a, the best. Yeah, it's 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 it, they're so great. And there's one thing, Brendan, which and and tags onto both something you guys both just said, which is there's a great shot that I recently um, heard talked about on a great show. Friends of this our show, the the Screen Drafts guys, and potentially future guests on this Miami Nice show, Ben David Grabinski was talking about a shot in Top Gun where there's a briefing for all of the soon to be potential Top Gun pilots. Like it's a quintessential Tony Scott shot where rather than it being in a shitty classroom on a naval base, he's like, no, let's get flags and put like fighter jets and make it in a hangar. And that's where we're going to shoot this dumb classroom scene because it's like, no, we're not going to, this is cinema. We're going to make the most of this, this, this epic canvas that we've got. Like we've got full cooperation from the army. And it just reminded me of this movie of like, this the technology i I, that's what i love the versatility digital photography just for me is because like one moment you get the when you said the plane i thought of the boat too like Mm -hmm. these incredible shots that are almost unfathomable in 2006 to get and they now have kind of formed the language of how you tell these stories all the way until now um but then there's that great scene where they're prepping to go and have this like final gun battle and it's in an airplane hangar. And in watching just like sort of clips of this movie for the prefer- preparations for this talk, I was just like, fuck, that's such a Tony Scott 
like move. It's like, this could be in a police briefing room. It could be in at, standing at the back of a trunk. Like you've seen in so many movies where, you know, like bad boys where they put on the vests and they grab a shotgun and they're having a conversation and so many other parts of this movie like that, but no, it's in this gorgeous hangar at sunset with their cool ass plane and these impossibly long tables that look like they're like for a wedding and they're having this like cool conversation. They look immaculate and you're like, yeah, this, that, yeah, this is what we need. This is, this is movies. This is cinema. Um, it reminds me just how much of a classicist man is formally, you know, yeah. it's in his bones, it's in his DNA that he has this kind of classicism to his style. And when you, like you're saying that it reminds me of Kurosawa and it reminds me of Ford. Yeah. You know, um, Ford would stage these banal, you know, how do we wrangle the cattle scenes with these unbelievable <laughs> skies? You know, he could have done them anywhere, framed them however he wanted. It also reminded me of the police briefing scene in like my top three Kurosawa, uh, which is High and Low. Yeah. If anybody hasn't seen High and Low, gosh, right. you have to find that film. Right. It starts out as a one place heist film in a way. And then it becomes this amazing noir. And there's this great police briefing scene in that movie where it goes on a long time. It doesn't end. So Kurosawa probably says to himself, how could I make this visually exciting for the viewer? So he has all these neon signs and lights out of the background, always flashing. So it's almost hypnotic. There's like this rhythm to these flashing lights. And I think that it's in that tradition of, hey, if we're going to make a movie, let's make a fucking movie. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's dress it up. You know, who cares if this scene would take place not in an amazing hangar? It's a movie, you know? Um, and I love that. Well, I think we've talked about the airplane hangar scene before because I think we were like trying to puzzle out like how they get from point A to point B and yeah. there's an airplane hangar there's in there an somewhere and we're like, wait, why are they at the airplane hangar? So that's just what I was And it was only say. another, it was only another Miami Vice fan that made me realize, oh yeah, it's a fucking movie, Blake. Who gives it looks a shit? cool. It looks the, cool. That's the answer. I will just throw my, my two cents in for let's make a fucking movie, which is... I felt that way about Joel Schumacher. Mm. Stay with me. Yeah, I'm with um, you. <laughs> one of, one of my favorite uh, first watches of 2020 was Flatliners. Today's a good day to die. Flatline. Thirty seconds to go. Can you recall any specific emotion or sensation? No, but there is something out there. We're running out of time. Three hundred. Clear. Nothing. Your heart go again. Clear. Nothing. I can't hear anything. Come on, Nelson. Breathe. We lost. Because it's like, okay, we're going to like kill each other and then bring each other back to life. And it's like, okay, we're in a fucking basilica with these giant heads (laughs) and flapping plastic and like smoke billowing everywhere. And it's like, why are they doing this in like an abandoned museum? Like, I don't know why, but I'm just going to go with it. And like every scene is just like smoke, neon, Kevin Bacon climbing out a window for no apparent reason. Like (laughs) if you would read the script, it'd just be like, they talk to each other, but like all this crazy shit is happening because it can and why not do it? So I'm all for make a fucking movie. (laughs) Our conversation has kind of come full circle here because before we were talking about how man is so skillful at making the environment, this thematic, uh, 
you know, tapestry or stage for the characters to perform and feel in. And um, I think that in the case of Vice in particular, you know, it, he, he embellishes more than he has anywhere else. But to go back to this idea of like Lucas creating and man documenting or observing. <laughs> yes. Part of that, what makes Mammy Vice so amazing, and I'm far from the first person to say this, it's a movie that feels dangerous because you almost feel as though the characters could get blown off a rooftop or lightning could come down. <laughs> and it adds to this quality of like, how is this real? Like, it's a lightning in a bottle thing where a lot of what, it's like, you know, uh, the stars perfectly aligned that man had this particular video format at this particular shoot for this particular film that happened to be shot during a hurricane right. they didn't totally plan for. And only those digital cameras could have captured, oh, not just those digital cameras, those digital cameras shot with the ISO cranked all the way up. Fincher yeah. would never have wanted that shit. Not he would have dialed that all down and got a control <laughs> image. But only those particular cameras in this particular shoot with the ISO cranked up with this particular style could have captured all the crazy shit that's happening in the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so it's like this perfect thing where the stars are aligning in a way that filmmakers can't totally plan for or control, you know? Yeah. I mean, they uh, capture Colin Farrell at his most drunk, feral, like sunburned, bloated, <laughs> sunburned, <laughs> bloated, and vacant in the eyes, but somehow like <laughs> completely there. You're like, right. I don't understand it. I don't understand. I mean, it. He's part of it. this like lightning in a bottle thing where it's yeah. like, we just got him and it's like, he's about to go off the rails. He's about to go to Argentina and smooch Diego Maradona, but we got him for this and he, we captured it. And now he's like clean and doing jogging and he's totally yeah. like, he's never going to do this. He's never going to do a movie like this again, unless right, we're we exactly. worried that he's going to be derailed. But like Michael Mann, one of his first movies was like a, he interviewed, a, he did a documentary short called Insurrection. And I just like, it's just because I've been such a Michael Mann guy forever. You know, you see these things and you get to look at it. And it's like, he would, that, that, that was interviews with the 1968 riot leaders from Paris, like about what happened. And so like the chaotic things and, and chaotic times in his movies, like have an appeal and like the chaos of this movie, you know, just seems like the overwhelming like manifestation of like, Oh, you really do. Do you like chaotic times? Do you like chaos? Like here's, here's the thing you probably weren't expecting was going to be chaos and it's going to, we're going to throw every curveball at you conceivable. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's so good. It's so good to, it's, it's so good to be back talking Miami Vice because it's so fun to talk about with every new person. I know. It's so and Brendan, fun. you're like making me love this movie even more. Like yeah. the way you talk about it, the way you write about it. I'm like, oh my God, this is like pure <laughs> cinema. <laughs> it is pure cinema. I mean, I, it's really a visual symphony, you know, in, in a way. And I totally get why it doesn't work for some people. I get it. It's not going to open every door to every viewer. Listen, but... if the three of us walk to the front row of a symphony performance... And we're all in like tails and Katie's in a beautiful gown. <laughs> Brendan and I have shaved our face to be more like <laughs> Colin Farrell. And we sit down in our tops and tails right at the front. And instead of a symphony playing, Nam Encore plays, would we be happy? 
Yes. I would scream. I would, I would scream. scream. Stand up, start clapping. <laughs> like that is the difference. It's like you are there in this, you're there waiting for one thing and the movie just immediately punches you with something else. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm in. Like whatever that is, I'm in for this ride. I, lo- I love it. And I, and I love yeah, talking yeah. and I love, I love whether we have a podcast specifically about it or whether other conversations we've had, Brendan have derailed into it. I love talking to you every second um, to you about Miami Vice. It's been a treat.